You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I am Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my fabulous podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, folks. Welcome to the show. All right. Today, we're talking about unicorns. And no, I haven't started day drinking yet. What I mean by unicorns are like unicorn startups, companies that reach that stage of hyper growth with a billion dollar evaluation. What are the principles that our guests have seen that have allowed these companies to achieve such a high level of growth? And how do we best maintain that level of growth? I'm hoping they'll provide us with some great insights that we could apply in our own companies and situations. And to help us out with this incredible topic today, we have Pablo Dominguez and Matthew May, authors of a new book, What a Unicorn Knows, How Leading Entrepreneurs Use Lean Principles to Drive Sustainable Growth. Pablo and Matt have also have day jobs at Insight Partners, where they help their investment companies drive accelerated growth and scale their operations. They have seen at Insight Partners over 90 unicorns. Pablo and Matt, thank you both for taking the time today and welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. All right, folks. Hey, to get us started, I always love our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So here's my question to kick us off. And Matt, I'm going to go to you first. So just prepare you. Hey, what is something that you're passionate about that those that only know you through work might be surprised to know? All right. So two criteria, passionate and might be surprised. I don't know about the second one, but I have a passion for cycling, mountain biking and road biking. So that's If I've got time every day, I find myself on a bike of some sort. So I don't know if that's a big surprise, though, especially not the Pablo. Well, if I ever come out to your end, I'll have to get in shape so I can go mountain biking with you because I love that as well. Absolutely. Pablo, what do you got? So I got two things. I don't think it'll be a surprise for most people, but I love to smoke meat. I am a smoker aficionado and like to do it during the week on the weekends for the fam. And uh, like Matthew, I also mountain bike. And for those of you that'll be lucky enough to watch this on video, I am not dressed because I literally just finished mountain biking this morning and did not have time to shower before this podcast. <laughs> well, thanks. He's not naked though. He's not, so just, he is dressed. He just, he's dressed in mountain bike yeah. gear. Luckily, it's not smell vision <laughs> Appreciate you coming out. <laughs> Amazing. So tell us a little bit about each of your individual stories. How did you get to the point of writing such an insightful book and such a fantastic success that you're seeing at Insight Partners? Maybe Matt, want to kick that off? Yeah, sure. Well, the book comes out of probably a little over half decade of focused work that Pablo and I have been engaged in through a series of companies. We won't go through every single one of them, but we've worked together probably yeah, a little over a decade and the last five years of which have been really focused on applying lean principles from my background as a Toyota guy to the tech forward world, especially at Insight Partners where it's all SaaS B2B software. So Amazing. Pablo? Yeah. Tackle what Matt said. Matt and I had a chance to work together at a public company where we did an applied lean principles. Then we worked together at a startup that I joined after that public company and applied some of those principles in the sales org, the services org with the HR team. And then when I joined Insight Partners in 2018, Matt joined shortly after, and we've had the pleasure of working with 
over 40 of our portfolio companies applying these principles. And so over the last six years, you know, Matt and I had been talking about, hey, be great to put some of these principles down on paper, share them with the community, since this is not necessarily a topic that a lot of people know about. Yeah, what, what comes out in February is sort of the culmination of that work over the last, like, like Matt said, six years. So we're really excited. That sounds amazing. Let's double click on that for our listeners a little bit. Let's start with lean. You both mentioned it. Traditionally, we've only really heard about it in manufacturing-focused organizations. So how do you go about applying those concepts to non-manufacturing companies? Matt, maybe you want to take a crack at that? Sure. I think it really begins with defining or redefining or repositioning what lean is, where it comes from, and why it even makes sense for these kinds of companies. Most people do think about lean in terms of lean manufacturing. And there was about a decade ago, a book came out called Lean Startup, which was based on kind of the continuous improvement part of lean manufacturing. Lean just means absence of waste. That's all it really means. So you're taking waste out of your processes, out of your daily activities, your work, in order to do one thing, and that's to improve revenue. Most of the books that are written, most of the lectures that are given have missed the point that Lean, which is based on the Toyota production system, has always been about one thing, how to get more money in the door quicker. The chief engineer of the Toyota production system on which Lean is based, and it's the word for Toyota production system, was always about order to cash, shrinking that time through the reduction of waste. Waste means overproduction, overprocessing, stuff like transporting things, motion, time, defects, all the stuff that gets in the way of value. And that's really what we mean when we talk about lean principles, which is really truly important in today's economic climate. So Definitely. We are talking about that every day with clients. So that sounds like it's a very useful concept. Pablo, could you share some examples of how you've seen these principles in SaaS software or technology business, especially in areas such as sales and marketing, which is a lot of our listeners are in? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think this is why we're so excited because if you just listen to what Matt said, you might go, well, transportation, like we don't ship stuff, right? We're not building cars per se. And so, okay, maybe I get the lean process. And so what Matt has been able to do in working with our portfolio companies is, if you think about sales and marketing, it's very process-driven, right? Customer wants to buy something, they enter in the customer journey as a lead, right? And that lead then converts into an opportunity, that opportunity gets closed, then you have to do some implementation, potentially get the customer up and running, and then there's post-sale stuff, right? And you're making money along the way. And what we realized is in working in the public company, in the startup, and now with our Porcos is, the sales process and post-sales process is ripe with inefficiencies, right? And so to Matt's point around lean being the focus to drive revenue more quickly, right? Like decreasing that time to value, the number of times I'm sure the listener or you guys have seen customers say, well, it takes me so long to get the contract signed, right? Or it's taking six months to implement something or three months, like if we could only get that down 30 days, right? Or 50% more efficient. That's how we've applied it really in the SaaS world is, can you decrease the time it takes to get the customer to sign a contract, right? If you decreased it by a week, imagine how much more revenue gets in quickly, right? If you can decrease implementation times, et cetera. So it's taking those principles and just making it real for sales and marketing and post-sales executives to decrease the time to revenue, which again, to Matt's point, should always be critical, right? But in today's economic environment, even more critical given the headwinds that we're seeing. 
So Pablo or Matt, whoever wants to answer this, I mean, many early companies seems to start with this focus of growth at all costs. We've all seen it. They build it, they sell it to early adopters, and then they try to figure it out after the fact. How do I sell this more effectively and at scale? The question for you guys, is that the same case that you see in unicorns? Are they different? Is that something that's actually changing in today's startups? I think what we see is the unicorns that have been most successful, right? And again, just to re-educate everyone, like unicorn means you've been valued at a billion dollars, right? And you're growing at a certain pace. So the companies that are able to maintain that valuation and continue to grow, the reason why we're focusing on sustainable growth is that they're doing things that allow them to grow sustainably and efficiently long-term versus growth at all costs, right? Because growth at all costs sort of means, let me just try everything, anything, and like, over hire and just let's see what sticks, right? And part of what Matt also brings to the table is this notion of like, focus really first on the strategy, right? Of where should I be playing and where should I not be playing as a company, right? Because the mistake that a lot of companies make is I try to do too many things at once, right? I'm trying to roll too many products out. I'm trying to go into too many regions. I'm trying to cover every single segment. And then you dilute your sales force, your marketing team, like you don't have enough capacity, right? And so then things get diluted. And so in today's environment, even more critical to say, if there's headwinds, where am I going to focus? Where do I place my bets to make sure I can grow in a sustainable way? Matt, what else are you going to say? No, that's it. We had a baby boom of unicorns last year in 2021. I think there were four times more birth, so to speak, of unicorns. And it's kind of come back down to earth to what it was 2020, which is just short of 200. The challenge is not just being branded a unicorn, but maintaining your unicorn status. So it's about sustainable growth, which lands us on the doorstep of efficiency, durability, which is the, it's anathema to growth at any cost, right? And so now you have to be a little bit more disciplined about your strategy, a little bit more disciplined about the value you're providing to customers. You got to make sure that your product remains robust and evergreen and you have new products coming out. The, all of that is about a, a maturity phase that goes beyond startups, just south of fully mature. But that's really the challenge. So yeah, I agree. So I like the idea of this kind of focused discipline on efficiency, right? Not just getting whipsawed by the market or the opportunity ahead of you. And I'm sure some of our listeners are going, love it. I got a million areas that I need to impact. Where would you all recommend they start? Are there certain areas that are more important, certain parts of their business that are more important than others, more effective than others, maybe even based on these economic conditions that we find ourselves? Yeah, it goes back to what I mentioned before, Carlos, right? Like, if you start with strategy, and so we're very metrics-driven as a firm, right? Like when we're working with portfolio companies, if you start with strategy in terms of like, okay, we want to be X, right? And we want to sell X, Y, Z, and we want to play in these markets. All right, well, let's look at the metrics for the products you've got, for the what's the CAC, what's the GTM efficiency, what's the LTV, right? Lifetime value, for each of the segments, right? For the regions, for your products. And you might want to be doubling down on something, but if the metrics don't support the growth you need, okay, well, why, right? One of the things that Matt is great about is like asking five whys. Like, are we not effective because maybe we didn't have the right sales leader there? We didn't invest in marketing or maybe the product's not ready or 
maybe that's a place we should just abandon and focus on the other three things, right? And so we try to have people hone in on, let's look at the metrics, let's look at the efficiency and make decisions based on where is the market going? Where do we think we can grow most effectively versus just trying to like cast a net and try and see what sticks, right? And when you're earlier, you're a 2 million ARR company, 3 million ARR, like your early stage, you might need to cast a wire net because you don't know what's going to stick, right? You're trying to figure out product market fits. So you've got a little bit more room for error, but as you start to mature, you've got to get more laser focused to really get momentum and especially in today's times. I love that. In fact, a lot of times when me and Lisa engage with organizations, one of the first things we ask is like, hey, what are your big rocks? What are those big strategic goals that you have for the next, not just one year, but three to five years also? So, because what I'm really looking for is how well aligned they are, which kind of leads you to our next question. A lot of clients talk about, well, Carlos, it's about obvious revenue targets, or we got to go up market or retention rates, which are these kind of rear view mirror kind of things on one side. But the other problem with the, with it is it takes an entire organization to do those sort of things. And what I mean by that is marketing, sales, service, customer success, product. For example, if they say, hey, it's really about retention rates, but renewal time, we're just not getting them to renew or renew at the rates that we want. And I kind of, you, know, you peel back the onion and go, well, that's difficult to do if the customer never achieved that desired business outcome that they were looking for. And by the way, and it's also difficult to know, even know what that is if that wasn't part of your process way back at the sales cycle. <laughs> yep. When you started to have these conversations to get them to buy whatever product service you're selling, it, did you just pitch your product or did you really understand their big desired goals, their underlying problems, and those desired outcomes, and then track it through that sales cycle? So it's a long-ass question. I'm sorry. But it's really about kind of cross-functional alignment. Do unicorns do it better? They definitely do it better. And I think part of why I think people will enjoy the book also is because we specifically talk about value mapping and lean process, right? And the exercise that we do with our portfolio companies, right? Especially the unicorns, because you mentioned something right now, Carlos, in terms of, so maybe it's an NRR issue, mm -hmm. right? Like maybe NRR is not as high as it should for those of you listening and ours, net revenue retention. And when we bring teams together, we always bring cross-functional teams, Carlos, right? So if it's an NRR issue, we're not sitting down with customer success or the account managers. We start from the beginning. There's sales reps, there's BDRs, there's marketing, finance, right? Because finance is working on contracts, legal. Pricing models. You've got HR in there. Yeah, you've got post-sales implementation. And you have those people map out the current process, right? Because remember, each of these functions, they only see their world. They're very siloed. They don't know what happens before or after. It's like, I've got my task and it got handed off to me and then I hand it off to somebody else. So when they start to map it out, they go, wow, like, why are we doing this, right? And then Matt has them go through the exercise. Of, okay, those of you that are in the trenches, right? These are not executives who are typically up in la-la land and th see things at 50,000 feet. These are like the people in the trenches. So now you see what's broken map out what you think the process should be, right? So now you've figured out the NRR issue is not really a post-sales issue. It started all the way in the beginning, like you said, Carlos, right? We pitched the wrong product. Maybe we priced it incorrectly. So then the people cross-functionally come up with a new way of doing it, which we then MVP. And then that gets deployed after two, three months of like, hey, this worked. Maybe you iterate a little bit. And then you see changes, right? And so the beauty is, 
It is a cross-functional team that identifies the issues and it opens people's eyes to the entire process, not just their world. And that's what the unicorns do, right? The companies that are most successful bring in the cross-functional team versus, ah, we're just going to have the post-sales team figured out. But maybe it wasn't that issue. So, right. And they also get good at, Carlos, what you mentioned, which is understanding and aligning with the business desired outcomes of that customer. So kind of work from the customer back. And the thing that makes this whole construct or framework, which we'll probably talk about in a few minutes here, valuable is the lens through which you look at that alignment, which is the lens of subtraction. Where generally speaking, most companies, most organizations do way too much stuff. And so if you work from the customer back, get crystal clear on what their desired business outcomes are, align with those, then you can systematically remove the stuff that gets in the way of them achieving that. And then they kind of bond with you for life if you get that right. And that's kind of the difference between those that make it and stay at the unicorn and above level and those that don't. Great point. You just answered the question I was about to ask, actually, Matt, which was how much does the customer journey actually, the customer's process align with that internal process that Pablo was explaining? So tell us about the framework. I know it is this the one that maps to the word scale? Yes. Yes. Pablo, you want to do it? You want me to take it? Take it. All right. Yes. So there is an acronym. You got to have an acronym when you write a book, right? So people can remember it. You should know, Matt, you've written a few. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i think this may be my first acronym though so i'm kind of bucking the trend but it's <laughs> for strategic speed constant experimentation accelerated value lean process and esprit de corps those are five basic principles and we kind of liken that to another fast moving target or object which is a formula one car and a formula one car faces physical forces it faces drag It faces inertia, it faces friction, it faces uh, waste. And if you can remove those obstacles, and anyone who's worked in an organization has felt friction. Salespeople certainly feel friction from their customers. People getting onboarded with software feel that friction. We've all felt corporate inertia. Organizations like, oh my God, it's taken so long to spin up. And once it's there, we don't change course rapidly enough. We're not good at making decisions strategically very quickly. And oh my gosh, we've lost our entrepreneurial spirit. We used to be like a garage group, right? Always running experiments and prototypes, and we've lost that. So that's our sort of central framework. And the the challenge is how do you pick a place to start and begin to put in place the things that would allow you to grow as a unicorn would grow in a very disciplined way in a sustainable way. So those are the five principles. That's the acronym for scale. Yeah. Remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And going back to, I know Pablo had mentioned a few of them, but what are the main obstacles or mistakes that you see organizations make that that really helps them or affects them and is makes it harder for them to recover from that and get back on the track of scale? Yeah, I think it goes back to trying to do too many things at once and you spread yourself too thin and honestly not focusing on lean in the sense of continuous improvement and process optimization, right? People roll out a process or a way of doing things and then just assume like, hey, we got a bunch of smart people in the room or maybe you brought McKinsey and Bain in and they came up with something and then you're like, oh, this has got to be good. And then you let it go, right? Versus Matt has done a really good job of training our Porcos to 
hey, every six months, you should be reevaluating something you rolled out. Is that the most effective way? Is there a way to make it better, right? And not for the sake, not doing it for the sake of improvement, but hey, there's always probably a better way to do it. And so when you're not doing that, I think people end up creating more complexity. And remember, as you scale as a company, you're adding new people, you hire someone that came in that has another idea, you add new tools, and you sort of just start building on things on top of each other. And you don't always have time because everybody uses the analogy like, hey, we're building the plane while it's flying, mm-hmm. right? You don't have time to land, get people out of the plane and sort of figure it out. But you've got to find time to sort of hit pause midair to go, all right, are there things we can tweak while we're flying? And I don't think everybody does that, right? They just stack more and more. And to Matt's point, he's got another book, Laws of Subtraction, like, The most successful companies are finding ways to remove things versus just adding and adding. Adding adds a lot of complexity versus making you more streamlined. We talk about Formula One a lot. The fact that a Formula One team in 1.9 seconds, I think that's the fastest time, can change four tires and fill a car with gas. Like if you think about it, one, like two seconds, like I don't even know that's physically possible, but they do it, right? So if a company can put that discipline in, right, within their sales and marketing teams, post-sales teams also, et cetera. Just imagine how much more revenue you could drive and satisfaction for your customers. That's also, as you're talking and we were talking about the customer lens, something that I say to people all the time is like, how many roadblocks are you putting up to sale? It's understanding like, of course, there needs to be a qualification process. But if your internal process gets more complex and heavier and clunkier, how does that look to your customer? Like they just want to get to that point of value realization. How many hoops do they have to jump through (laughs) to get there? Yeah, no, exactly. And that's so one point to bring up to people, because I think this will be really relevant. I don't know how many, not well, I can tell you from experience, not everybody does this because I also didn't do this when I was operating. Companies do a very good job of streamlining their process, right? And so they go, well, now we've made this better. And before I used to do this and that, and we don't have as many touch points. But have you thought about it from the customer's point of view? Like you might be like, hey, we're awesome. But then the customer's like, I don't really care (laughs) that you have this system and stuff. That's not my experience, right? So when Matt engages with our portfolio companies, we try to map both processes. It's like you're marrying... What does the customer go through? What is our internal process? And like, if it doesn't both improve and you've got it disconnected, then you've got issues, right? Because ultimately it's about the customer, Lisa, right? To your point, like if the customer's not experiencing a seamless transaction, an excellent journey, right? Going back to Carl's point on, you need to renew that customer. You want them to buy more stuff. And if you don't exhibit an awesome experience, why would I do that? right? I'll take my business elsewhere if the product is comparable somewhere else, right? So very important to think about not only your internal process, but also how the customer goes through that process as well, because they don't go through a sales process in their mind, right? right? They're going through a buying journey. They're not thinking about the stages you've created. You got to look at it through both lenses. Yeah, they're thinking about the job that they need to get done. And that's the framework that we use to back into our processes, whether the pain points that were points of friction that we're generating, potential churn points. So we use a framework called, and it's not ours, it's been out there for 20 years. Clayton Christensen basically came up with it, if that's a name that you're familiar with, the innovator's dilemma. Jobs to be done. 
right? A customer has a job to be done, meaning there's an objective they're trying to achieve and a key result they're trying to measure the success of achieving that objective with. Your solution is one of a wheelbarrow full of solutions that they could opt for. So you have to think about what are all your touch points? How are you making that job easier? How are you making it harder? Is there a point at which they're looking at alternative solutions, which means they may potentially churn? And then what are our internal processes that are producing those? And then what are the opportunities to improve and look at those opportunities through a lens of subtraction? Easy peasy. Now you've got a ways to in- accelerate and improve value to the customer. And that's the end game. Great points. We had a, an earlier podcast this year, we talked about a customer-centric culture And one of the things we talked about, Pablo, it's kind of like the point you made is, hey, who's representing the customer in our processes? Who's stepping up to say, hey, this renewal process, we're all trying to do internally very effectively. What does it look like to the customer on the outside, right? Are we making it a better process for them and an easier process for them to engage? And I can't agree with you more. It's not, no one out there wants to be sold, but everybody wants to buy. So if you really thought about your selling motions as, hey, how do you help someone buy your stuff? How do you help people come to the conclusion that says this is the right solution for my set of problems and it's worth it? It's worth not only the expense, but the whole risk of change. And that's just kind of a perspective on processes. So love what you guys are saying. So for this book, I mean, I think we could spend three hours on it, but then then maybe less people actually read the book. So I'll try to keep it short. Who (laughs) should read it, right? Who's your target audience when you think about, when you thought about your book? Yeah, no, great question. I mean, the target audience, honestly, is CEO, CRO, CMO, anybody running a business, right? Could be a CTO, CPO also. Like, we obviously work a lot with go-to-market teams, sales and marketing, right? Anybody that is touching revenue, basically, can have an impact in running a company more effectively from a strategy perspective, optimizing a process, right? There are so many use cases across the entire spectrum of a company that this is not just for the CEO. It's definitely for the head of revenue, the head of marketing. But in the startup that Matt and I were at before, we use this in HR, right? HR was onboarding a lot of individuals and recruiting process was suboptimal. It took too long to get somebody onboarded in the company, right? So as long as you've got a process or you're not clear on your strategy, the book has a very applicable use to a very wide range of individuals. But we love this because it's really designed to take what people think is for manufacturing and applying it really to the business world, right? So whether it's tech, we obviously work in a SaaS and a SaaS investment company, but it could work in any company that has a go-to-market team, honestly. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, we've tried to make it very practical. We've tried to blend a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of education, and a little bit of practicality and applicability. So there are tools in there. There are agendas for workshops because much of what we do is delivered through a workshop setting. For example, the value mapping, customer value mapping thing that I just talked about, physical map that you can download, put it on the board, go through a quick agenda in the course of six hours, come away with multiple views of multiple customer personas and have really very nice punch list on moving forward. So it's kind of by operators, we're operators, former operators, now advisors, anyone that's operational will get something out of this. Those that are more strategic will get something out of this. We tried to blend a little bit of everything, but really give you handrails for how to progress with this stuff. So it's not just 
us spitting stuff out. It's all based on work that we have done and seen work. It's field tested. So it's not any kind of fluffy. It's not just we've studied. It's not academic. Yeah. We are not scholars. So <laughs> anyone thinks that we are looking for a scholarly book, this isn't it. <laughs> I love it. So wondering, because people like to kind of get a picture in their mind, is there a company that you would hold off as an example of, hey, they did it right? Can you share something like that? Yeah, I'd say if you look at one of the companies that we, probably one of our darlings, Monday.com, okay. right? Israeli company, strong PLG motion, strong enterprise motion. They've been able to do really everything amazing, right? IPO, they did it all, right? And just like any other company, they also had their challenges, but they've been very process-driven very focused from a strategy perspective on what they wanted to do, where they wanted to focus, very good at doing, we talk about MVPs in the product world in terms of like, hey, when you're building product, right, be agile and like test and iterate. Those are one of the concepts also in our lean scale is, hey, you can also apply that in sales and marketing, right? Rather than deploying something that you're not sure is going to work, hey, let's test this out before we go live. And, And I think they've been able to do that very effectively. So we do hold them up as one of our premier examples of companies that have scaled very effectively to unicorn status, to IPO, and have a very wide breadth of marketing and sales execution. Love it. Thank you for that. And there's always the story that begins the book, which is that of Gainsight. I don't know if you're familiar with Gainsight, but we began working with them before they were unicorn status. And we were able to, just through one or two short workshops, cross-functional sales and post-sales, take 66% out of their implementation time and cut their sales cycle in half. A year later, they were valued at over a billion dollars. So not that we were completely responsible for that, but we figure we're integral somehow. So it's another good example, a well-known company. So yeah, it works. So just off those stories, I have kind of a two-pronged question here. Number one, do you believe there is an element of intuition or gut feel when it comes to evaluating a company that Insight Partners might want to invest time and money in? And secondly, do you ever think this is a team or a person I want to invest in more so than a company? Yeah, so good question. And I'll caveat with Matt and I are not on the investment side, right? And so our investment team is some of the best, if not, oh, I would say we're the best in B2B SaaS software because that's all we do, right? So we do not do flying cars. We don't do (laughs) stuff to the moon, which is cool if you're somebody else, but we are very focused back to the principles of the book. Like our strategy is to be the best in B2B SaaS software, right? So if that's your space, we're looking for the fundamentals. We were going back to earlier in the podcast, we were talking about like metrics and KPIs. Very little is, I mean, obviously like there is gut feel when they build a relationship with someone, but decisions are made on numbers, right? And do you think they're, does a company have product market fit, right? Do they have sound fundamentals? And again, we're growth investors, right? So we're looking for things that have very high NRR, right? That have a high ARR growth rate that's on a good trajectory. So very, very metrics driven. And if the metrics don't fit, like that's not something we typically invest in. So I would say we, Definitely drink our own champagne when it comes to making decisions on where to put money to use. Excellent. Do the people come into play? I'm just curious. I'm assuming it does because like our team, like since I run sales and customer success for Insight, right? So we, I'm, I'm on the operating side with Matt, 
you're always evaluating the people, right? Are these individuals that know what they're doing, right? Especially from a sales perspective, right? Like you're, we're about to invest in a company and we get asked, all right, is this CRO or head of sales? Can they take us to the next step? Or do they only have 12 months and then we got to bring in somebody else because this person maybe hasn't gone to 100 million, right? So the people definitely do make an impact and there's other teams evaluating product, et cetera. But ultimately, if the company has the right people, they've set the right strategy, they've built good product, they're also hiring good people. So yeah, like you're evaluating is the company, it's almost like a race car, right? Like the race car could have all the great metrics. Is it a good driver? Right. right? You don't have the right driver, you're not going to win a race just because you have the best car, right? So it is a two-piece equation where the people ultimately will make the company run effectively. And I think part of what Insight does is augment the people with supporting operators that can help the different functional teams, marketing, product, engineering, sales, post-sales, be more effective, right? And I think that's what we love about our job and working with our portfolio companies. You know, it's funny because I was just going to think of it from the other side of it, right? You got a startup, multiple VCs are trying to give you money (laughs) and get some equity, and you have to differentiate yourselves. And I think the work that Pablo and Matt do on the operational side is a differentiator for Insight Partners. So it's like, hey, we're not just going to invest in you and point you in a certain direction and grab a board seat. We're also going to try to give you the support, if you want it, in the areas of your business to get better with folks that actually know what they're doing. So didn't mean to make this a commercial for Insight Partners, but I think (laughs) you guys are a differentiator in what you all do. Yeah, and just to add to some of that, we spent some time, amazing time, with Reshma Saljani who's the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code and Marshall Plan for Moms. And she told us a story of the people part of this, where she had a very close partner that at some point she had to ask the question, is this someone who can lead us into the next phase of growth? And had to have that very difficult conversation. And if you have that conversation in just the right way, that person kind of comes to their own conclusion that, well, I don't think I'm the best person. I'm the best person now in this stage of growth and maturity, but I'm probably not the best person to lead us to the next. And that was just a very difficult, because it was very close to this person. It was her marketing officer, but there's always a human side to this. One of the principles of Esprit de Corps, we rely on good old military doctrine, I guess, of mission first people always. So there is a human side to all of this. So it's not completely calculator driven. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate it. All right. So I think we learn our biggest lessons sometimes by our mistakes, our missteps, if you will. So here's my next question for you both. What might be one of those missteps that you all experienced in your career, maybe before Insight Partners and all this, that you would love to share with us so that we can kind of learn from your own experiences? Do you have anything like that? Oh, I have so many mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) This is a podcast. This is Pablo, not Matt, in case you're wondering who. (laughs) I think my biggest mistake, and I think it allowed me actually to do my job effectively here at Insight, honestly, was when I left the corporate world to go to a startup in New York, I came in guns blazing, like, I know how to build a Ferrari. Like, I can get this company on track. Like, I was in charge of standing up operations. And slowly came to realize, the company was about $50 in ARR at that point, that Nobody knew what a Ferrari was, <laughs> much less a car, 
right? And so I was trying to introduce things that were designed for public companies. And even though they were best practices, it's like the body was rejecting the organ, right? And it took me about six months to realize, oh my God, like there's a garage and they don't even have car parts. So how would I even build this Ferrari just because it's in my head, right? And so it's changing that mentality of companies have different needs at different stages of growth and you can't force fit your experience because you've been at this company or that company and you think that you're really smart and you've got best practices, but you've got to figure out honestly, like what does the company need at that stage? And so can you take your learnings and adjust it to that stage versus trying to put in a Ferrari or something that they're not ready for, right? And I think now that I'm working with hundreds of our portfolio companies that are all different stages, the mindset that I use when I'm working with my team and also coaching them is, let's give them what's right for them, not what we think is right for them 10 years from now, right? And maybe sometimes you can go a little bit, but you don't want to overcomplicate things, otherwise it won't work. And so that was very painful for me because I struggled for the first six months and then realized, slow down, right? Reset. And so highly recommend people apply that approach also as you're going to different companies or changing roles potentially in your current company. Excellent. Matt, you got any of those in your back pocket? Any missteps? Of course. Of course. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how we learn, right? We right. generally don't learn from our greatest successes. We learn from our <laughs> failures and missteps. So kind of to the same point of Pablo, gosh, I was midway through my tenure, what would be my tenure with Toyota when I realized that I just really had no idea what I was doing what they had hired me to help them do. I was grossly unsuccessful at doing it. And I, it was because I thought I knew. And by a little bit of magic and help from someone else, I got clunked on the head, so to speak, to realize that I really didn't know anything. And once you kind of understand that you don't know, that that answer lies elsewhere, a little light switch gets flipped and it opened the door to an entirely different way of looking at the world, which lands us to this very point. I had never, ever planned on writing a book, much less a sixth one. I had never, ever planned on having a co-author like Pablo, but I've got one. And it's because I've remained kind of open to not knowing everything and not having every answer, but looking to ask the right question. I guess that was my missed up is don't just look for the right solution. Learn to look for the right question. Good things happen when you do. So Fantastic advice. So we'd love to continue talking for the whole rest of the morning, but <laughs> we won't take up that much more of your time. So we'll pivot to a couple of questions we ask every guest that we have at the end of every show. And the first is you are both executives, have been revenue executives in your careers and are in positions now where you get prospected to. I can only imagine the number of messages you get. If someone should reach out to you looking to earn some time and attention with no warm introduction, no referral, just pure cold outreach, what could be some elements of that message that might earn your attention and maybe even earn a response? So I get a lot of these, right, obviously. <laughs> and I am also, I probably respond to a lot of these to coach people. Cause I get a lot of bad ones. And so instead of just ignoring them, I'll be like, Hey, John or Sally, this email sucked, <laughs> right? Like one, it seemed canned. It's not like personalized. Like, why did you say this versus this? Like, I'm not buying, but like, you need to improve this. Right. And so sometimes they're like, Oh my God, thanks. <laughs> but what catches my attention at least is some personalization, right? I went to the university of Texas at Austin. I'm a Longhorn fan. I'm diehard. I love it when people 
there's a picture of something Texas, right? Or it's like, it's not that hard to know that I also love Texas because I'm blatantly proud of it. But at least it shows like, oh, okay, I'll read this because like maybe there's something else in there that's funny or, or interesting. And that might get me to respond versus it just being, I don't know, like boring. And so people that have got my attention all also add like a little video, right? Like little, I'm not going to watch a two minute loom video, but if it's a 30 second video that's embedded in the email or there's a GIF or a picture, like, all right, cool. That's different. And it's interesting, right? But it also has to be something I would want to buy, right? If I get a video or it says like, hey, I saw the women's volleyball team is ranked number one, but they're selling me something I would never even care about. Like, eh, who cares, right? But if it's the right audience and the messaging is right, like I usually always respond like, hey, all right, send me something else. So try to understand the persona you're going after. And again, depending on the size of the deal, you can spend more time personalizing, right? If I'm going to do 100 emails a day to SMB, I can't always personalize, but you can definitely choose some to personalize because I think the conversion rate is always higher. Love it. What about you, Matt? I'm not sure I have anything to add to that. I mean, it's kind of the perfect thing. Is, and you always get these cold calls, so to speak, that obviously they've done none of that, like zero, <laughs> right? It's like you obviously didn't even bother to look at my LinkedIn profile or take a wee glance at a website because this is obviously com- for someone completely not me. That just... So. Yeah, do your research. Do a little bit of research. Mm -hmm. I love the ones where it's like, if they reached out to one of you and said, we'd like to help you with the lean method, it's like, (laughs) you know, that's that's exactly what we do. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The ones that make you laugh, that's the sign. It's like, if they evoke a chuckle, you know, they're just completely off the mark. Right. All right. So those are excellent insights. And here's, it leads us up to our acceleration insights. And folks, you've given us a lot of great tidbits throughout this podcast, what might be that one last item you'd like to leave for our listeners that would help them in achieving their own goals, their own level of success? For me, I would say challenge the status quo. And I I say that to my team all the time. And that goes with the concepts of continuous improvement, constant experimentation from lean. And so you might go, yeah, I do it all the time. But the way I try to, I think it will help your career if you apply that to what you do. It's very easy to come into a company or a new role and go, oh, why do they do it this way? Let me bring a better way to do it, right? I read Matt's book on this, and so I'm going to apply that. Very few people go, oh, wait, I am the status quo for something I rolled out a year ago. Let me look internally at what I did and have my team improve it or challenge myself. Like Maybe that's not the best way anymore. So always challenge the status quo, but you are the status quo at some point. So don't just challenge other things. That's easy. Challenging yourself is also harder, but will always make you better. Love it. I'll dovetail on it. I love that. And the notion of status quo, I think one of the things we can always get better at is understanding the status quo. I think we assume that we know the status quo, but grasping the situation as it truly realistically is, is something that gets whitewashed. So ask questions like, gosh, are we making strategic decisions quickly? Is our product pipeline robust and continually refined? Where do I begin? Do I have the right leaders in the right places? Are my processes disciplined enough? And really ask yourself, do you understand where you are? Because we're good at setting that North Star and that big winning aspiration. But I think we could oftentimes just do a better job of understanding exactly where we are on the map so that we can realistically chart a path to those big goals. So I think we could just do better at that, that whole understanding the status quo. So I love that. Yeah, 
Really good advice. So, Matt, Pablo, if anyone wanted to get in touch with you, any of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you to discuss today's topics or ask you to speak for them or whatever at events, what's your preferred method of communication? Yeah, so Matt and I, we're both on LinkedIn, so feel free to look up Matt May or, or Pablo Dominguez, and you can message us there. We also have a website, What a Unicorn Knows, if you want more information on the book there or the concepts that you can leverage. So I'm very happy to connect with anybody and talk to anybody and share sort of what we've learned. Like, again, back to Matt's point, we wrote the book for the broader community, right, to take something that was designed for manufacturing to really share how we've leveraged it and give it back to the B2B world. Probably could also work in B2C, but that's not where we play. But yeah, feel free to reach out and happy to talk to anybody. Amazing. And good point. So folks, you can look for the book at whatauniconknows.com. Is there anywhere else they can find the book or is that the main place? Oh, it's Matt. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, like you name it. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, Pablo and Matt, thank you so much for being on the show today and for taking the time. We know how valuable it is and it's been great having you here. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you. It's been fun. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share this episode with your family, your friends, your colleagues, your dogs and cats. Get them off screens for a while. And if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and shoot us a five-star review on iTunes. I am Lisa Schneer with my podcast partner in crime, Carlos Noche. And until next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.